Habakkuk chapter three. And first of all, before we even get into it, can we just celebrate that for a second? I mean, we've gotten to the end of a book of the Bible, which it feels like it's been a long time since we've been able to say that, mainly because we've been off and on with the Gospel of John for about 9,000 weeks. But here we are, and we are about to finish the book of Habakkuk. It's one of the minor prophets, but again, it's only minor because of the size, which should not deflate our excitement right now that we're finishing a book of the Bible, okay? Now, Habakkuk, as you know, it is set within a tumultuous moment in Habakkuk's Uh, experience in Judah in the south. What is happening is the destruction of Israel in the north, the overtaking of the Assyrian Empire and the Egyptian Empire and the Neo-Babylonians are rising up. And this conversation between Habakkuk and God about what's taking place, namely the things that Habakkuk sees as violence and injustice, the system that has been set up, God, it is not working. And Habakkuk, as the prophet, is petitioning on behalf of the people. And one of the reasons why I wanted to hang out here for a few weeks, just a handful of weeks, is because in our specific moment, in our cultural history, when we look outside the walls of our homes, which some of us feel as though we are quarantined uh, within our own homes, when we look outside the window, when we peek into what's happening out there somewhere, we see violence and we see injustice, whether that is due to uh, racial uh, unrest and division and um, prejudice and white supremacy, whether that is due to political partisanship and the polarized uh, status of our country and the different people that we see that are putting big flags in the ground and staking their claim around their political ideologies and how that is causing real issues in a fake medium of social media. It's not causing as many uh, difficulties in face-to-face conversation, but at least online there's so much posturing that is taking place. I'm certainly not trying to say that these ideologies do not bleed over into real life. Um, But I am saying that in this moment, we have a real terrible cocktail of social distancing, lack of interaction, um, hard political stances, uh, and virtually the hatred of the American people, or at least half of the American people, based on what lever they pull when they vote. We also have this moment of just anxiety amongst the people. You take take racism uh, off the table for a, a moment, take the pandemic off the table for a moment, and now we are all sort of collectively anxious about what's going to happen, what's the fallout of all of these things for our jobs, for our kids, for school. What does it look like? What does your college semester look like in the fall? Are you going to be on campus? Are you going to be at a distance? For some of you that are transitioning into college? What does that look like? Maybe you feel cheated of a semester or a year of your life. Uh, Parents, you have no idea if you're going to be able to afford childcare. If while you work, if your kids are going to have a place to go and to learn, if that's something that you're going to be in charge of again. We have all of these questions that are looming, that are difficult, that are weighty. Each one in its own right, it deserves its own real focused attention so that we can tackle to whatever degree we are able um, the, the racial division 
in our country and in the community of the followers of Jesus, that we could also put some focused attention to our political system and our ideologies and how they might be driving the bus for us and how we as followers of Jesus need to engage in the political sphere. Or we also need to be thinking about um, the pandemic and having focused attention on what it means for us. How are we going to live? How are we going to stay safe? How are we going to be uh, continuing as uh, essential employees. Maybe for some of you, you've been doing that for such a long time now that it just seems like, well, this is what we do and I don't even care. I'm completely over it. And then we also have this other piece about the future. And and collectively, I think that we can share some of what Habakkuk is doing in that Habakkuk is petitioning God to be present. And if we are still praying, which I think is a legitimate question at this point because so much of life has been turned upside down that maybe some of our routines and some of our spiritual practices have also been upended due to the grief that we feel, the anxiety that that we are living in, the hatred that we have towards other people. Like all of this stuff might be forcing us to take a hard right away from God. And if we are still praying prayers at this point, which I would hope is the case, and I would urge uh, to be the case, however, I understand the landscape of where we are, I would say that our prayers are probably a bit more weighty now than they were five or six or seven months ago because the things that we are having to deal with are very different. And for many of us, they're not just hypothetical things. They're not just philosophical things. They're not just ideological things. They have real practical implications on how we live, how we interact with the people around us. And we are asking God to do something in our lives and in the lives of our communities. This is what Habakkuk is doing. Habakkuk is asking God to respond to the violence and the injustice that Habakkuk sees in his cultural moment in time. And what we have in chapter 3 is something that's a bit different. It's it's really uh, framed as a psalm. It's It's a response. However, it's got hooks to what has preceded it. Uh, Scholars don't really know what to do with it. I don't want to get sidetracked with that, though, although it's a fascinating conversation about whether it's early or late, whether it's been appended, uh, whether it's original to the book, all these sorts of conversations. Oh, they're so nerdy and fun, but I'm I'm not going to get into that. What we have here in this passage is a response of Habakkuk to God in light of everything that has transpired. This has been a give and take between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk saying, violence and justice do something. And God saying, here's what I'm going to do. And then Habakkuk saying, that's a terrible idea. And then God saying, I'm going to do it anyway. And you need to write it down on tablets so that everybody can see, so that anybody who reads it can run with it and be inspired by the vision of what's about to happen. And then they launch into what we talked about last week, this weird sort of woe oracles against the nations. It's a strange book. And it's this book that's back and forth between Habakkuk and God, and hopefully what we've taken away from that is a model of prayer that doesn't have to be quite as tamed as maybe you thought it had to be. In the midst of all of this stuff that we are in the midst of, your prayers can be weighty and angsty and powerful. 
And you're allowed to ask questions of God. This is one of the, the big takeaways, I hope, from, from today's talk. But this is Habakkuk. After this little introduction that's that kind of introducing the prayer, it says, The prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shigioneth. Nobody knows what the Shigioneth is. Uh, some people would say it's like this liturgical instruction about how to sing this song or what key it's in or any number of musical uh, direction. We have no idea. This is bookended at the very end of this psalm as well, where it says, uh, to the director with stringed instruments. It's really weird to close a psalm with that instruction, but we see those sorts of instructions throughout the book of Psalms. But again, nobody really knows with specificity what it's referring to. But we have this liturgical instruction, which also seems to tell you that this prayer has been utilized in public worship settings. So just hold on to that. And Habakkuk comes back in light of all the things that have preceded, all the things that we've talked about, the back and forth, and, and Habakkuk sort of uh, pushing back against God's responses. Um, it says, Lord, I have heard your reputation. I've heard the stories about you. I've heard the things that you've done. This, this verb here about I have heard, it's going to come back at the end in verse 16, which also works to frame the entire discussion. So we have Habakkuk here and Habakkuk at the end, and in between, we might have the vision that is supposed to be written on the tablets, but just hold on to that. Lord, I have heard your reputation. I have seen your work. You could also say, I, I stand in awe of your work. There is a fear, a reverence, a respect in me because of what you've done, because of the things that I know that you've done in the past. Over time, or, or when the years draw near, Habakkuk says, revive it. The verb there in, in Hebrew, it means bring it to life. It's almost like this resurrection term. It's not, but it has these, these, these intonations of the things that have happened previously, bring them to life again. Because we need them. We desperately need you, God, to bring to life all of the things of the past. Over time, make it known. Though angry, remember compassion or remember to show mercy. In other words, there's this joining of righteous wrath and how God will bring about God's judgment. But also Habakkuk is saying, but bring with that unmerited mercy and marry these ideas together. But at the core of this opening verse of this longer psalm, Habakkuk is saying, do what you have done in the past. Because as we look outside of our walls, as we look outside of the window, as we peek onto the news feeds, or as we hear about the numbers of COVID cases, or as we see the continued political unrest or, or racial division, as we look at all these things, all we can say is do what you have done in the past. Be who you are supposed to be for us. Violence, injustice is, is seeming to reign supreme and we need you to act. Now remember in chapter 2, Habakkuk is so fed up with what God has been saying, with the responses of God, that Habakkuk uh, concludes, I will take 
my post. I, I will stand at the watch posts, he says. I will position myself on the fortress, according to the Common English Bible, or I will position myself on the ramparts. I'm going to stand here from a, from a vantage point that is high enough where I can see what is about to take place. I will keep watch to see what the Lord says to me and how he will respond to my complaint. God, I am waiting for you to give the answer that I need that will satisfy my desire for violence to be taken care of, to be done away with, and for injustice to be turned over to justice. I am waiting for you to do this. And then God responds by saying this kind of enigmatic phrase, like write a vision and make it plain upon a tablet so that, this is the common English Bible, so that a runner can read it. Remember that image of someone who's running so fast they can look over and read the sign because it's so big and so plain and on it is emblazoned the vision of what God will do for God's people. That's one way to read that. Another way, a better way, would be so that a reader can run with it. When anyone reads this vision, they will be so inspired and they will be so filled with faith and trust, that they will run with it uh, because they are empowered by the words that it has. Now, here's the issue. Throughout the book, we do not know what the vision is. We have never heard with clarity what this vision is. And now some people would say what we have in verses 3 through 15 are, are the contents of the vision. Habakkuk says, I know what you've done. I know what you're able to do. I've heard the stories. Do that. Be that again. And then Habakkuk sort of launches into this ecstatic, prophetic experience. Woohoo! This is where stuff gets trippy and really weird because the Old Testament prophets, sometimes it seems like they're on mushrooms. You know what I mean? Like in Ezekiel, he sees like this, this concoction with all these wheels and all these eyes. And you're like, what is this guy on? And there's large conversations within scholarship about the ecstasy of the Old Testament prophets. Now, I don't want to get into that. Because what you'll take away is, oh, Josh says I should go out and do mushrooms. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? That is not what I'm saying. Not right now. That is a different conversation for a different day. But what I am saying is what Habakkuk receives here is a strange and powerful vision that actually, let me skip ahead here, it ends up with him saying, I hear, same verb as in chapter 2, it links these ideas in verse 16, I hear and my bowels are trembling because of what, what you've just told me. Right? It's, my lips are quivering at the sound of what you've just said, and rottenness is entering my bones. Like We have no idea what is going on here, but the vision that, uh, that Habakkuk is seeing is so magnanimous and so insane and so crazy that his bowels are shuddering. And I can... Uh, a little bit too much information here, but... I might be able to uh, have a point of contact there with, you know, when you go to Dairy Queen and you have a, a blizzard and what that does to your bowels. We should probably edit that out. But here we go. In verse 3, it talks about God. This is the vision. God comes from Taman and the Holy One from the mountain of Paran. This is uh, places from the south and God is coming up from the south to the north to do away ultimately with 
the powers that be with the, with the Neo-Babylonian empire that is arising, that's causing Habakkuk to say violence and injustice. What are you going to do with this wicked people that are enacting uh, judgments upon everybody else? And God is saying, I'm going to do something about it. Now, I also want to throw this in here because I like to crush your dreams from time to time. Okay. It says, God comes from Taman and the Holy One from the mountain of Paran, Selah. Okay, just, just one week ago, I got uh, a, a text from uh, a friend who was trying to figure out what Selah meant. And she was reading a book and the book said this, scholars believe that when Selah appears in the text, it is a direction for the reader to stop reading and be still for a moment because the previous idea is important enough to consider deeply. It sounds good, right? It sounds so nice that when you see this, you should just stop and contemplate. It's dead wrong. Most scholars have no idea at all what this means as they do with any musical direction. Uh, it's a cultural thing that is lost to us. In fact, my doctoral supervisor, John Goldengay, says this word, it comes at the end of lines in Psalms without any consistent patterning. Sometimes it does stop a thought, but other times it's just sort of placed in the middle where you wouldn't expect it. One example would be in Psalm 67 in between verses 1 and 2. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah that your way, it's like a continuation of this line, you wouldn't expect there to be any sort of break between verse one and verse two, that your way may be known upon all the earth, your saving power among all nations. It, it sort of breaks up the thought. Now you could make the claim that we should stop and, and think about this line and then this next line, but I think Golden Gay is on the right track here where he says it may be a liturgical or musical direction, but we don't know. There was one scholar who taught at Fuller Seminary, and I'll just throw this in there for your own uh, benefit. And he said, Selah shows up whenever David breaks a string on his lyre, which is completely preposterous. And he knows that, but it's sort of tongue in cheek. Like it just shows up randomly, but we have no idea why or, or where. Okay, so we have in, in verse 3 here, in the midst of Habakkuk's ecstatic prophetic vision, God comes from Taman, the Holy One from the mountain of Paran, Selah. His majesty covers the heavens and his praise fills the earth. His radiance is like the sunlight with rays flashing from his hand. There's other ways you can translate that line as well. You could say something like um, with a double pronged bolt projecting from his hand. Some people would even think that this means that Habakkuk is afforded a vision of the form of God, which is actually a, a theme, a motif throughout the prophetic literature. Uh, this is something that does happen. Uh, in the end of that verse there, it says that is the hiding place of his power. Pestilence walks in front of him and plague marches at his feet. This is a common ancient Near Eastern uh, symbol or, or image of God as the divine warrior, which as 21st century American wannabe progressive liberals who don't uh, want to be violent and want to be pacifists. We don't like the idea of God as a warrior, but understand that in the ancient world, this is how people referred 
to God. This is an image that tracked with the people. It made sense to the people because everyone around is talking about their God in this sort of way. Pestilence goes before God. Plague marches at his feet. He is about uh, destruction, and destruction is going to take place. It says he stops and measures the earth. I think you could also translate that as the earth like shakes because uh, uh, in fear because of God's approach. He looks and sets out against the nations. The everlasting mountains collapse. The eternal hills bow down. The eternal paths below, or excuse me, the eternal paths belong to him. I saw the tents of Kushan under duress. The curtains of the land of Midian were quaking. Was the Lord raging against the rivers? Habakkuk kind of interposes here. Or was your anger directed against the rivers? Or was your fury directed against the sea when you rode on your horses or rode your chariots to victory? This is another ancient Near Eastern battle theme of God taming the forces of chaos. We remember this from the creation story where God is hovering over the waters of the deep. God is taming chaos and is uh, making the earth habitable uh, by humans. Now, we also see this in the Exodus where God is taking the subjugated people of, of Israel and leading them through the Red Sea into freedom and hope and life. And in that moment of the Red Sea deliverance, the, the Psalms talk about that as God crushing the head of Leviathan, the sea monster. This is another battle against chaos. So here where it's talking about your anger being directed at the rivers or your fury directed at the sea, it's tapping into all of these images that made sense to an ancient Near Eastern people. It says you raise up your empty bow, uttering curses for the arrows. Selah. With rivers you split open the earth. The mountains see you and writhe. A flood of water rushes through. The deep utters its voice and raises its hand aloft. Again, there, the, the deep. God is at war with the, the forces of chaos. Um, this, this symbolism that for the audience of Habakkuk would have been equated with not the primordial forces of chaos, but the ones right here and right now, namely Babylon, the ones who were uh, attempting to threaten and bring about destruction. Those were the forces of chaos that God was supposed to do something about here and now. Sun and moon stand still high above. With your light, your arrows shoot with your spear at the flash of lightning. In fury, you stride the earth. In anger, you tread the nations. You go out to save your people. For the salvation of your anointed, sorry, lost my place there. Uh, you smashed the head of the house of wickedness, laying bare the foundation up to the neck. For salvation, for the salvation of your anointed, you smashed the head of the house of wickedness. Selah. <laughs> sorry, I, I love. I love that. I love putting a pin in that bubble. Uh, verse 14, you pierce the head of his warrior with his own spear. His warriors are driven off. Those who take delight in oppressing us, those who take pleasure in secretly devouring the poor, you make your horses tread on the sea, turbulent waters foam. This is the vision, verses 3 through 15. This is what Habakkuk sees, and this is what causes Habakkuk's bowels to tremble. Way worse than if he just had a blizzard from Dairy Queen. His lips are quivering at the sound. Rottenness is entering his bones. It says, I tremble while I stand, while I wait for the day of distress to come against the people who attack us. 
J.J.M. Roberts says, even in his terror, the prophet recognizes the promise that's implicit in this vision, and the response of his will to the vision is precisely what God demanded in Habakkuk 2.3, this write the vision, make it plain. In light of the vision, Habakkuk is willing to cease from his complaints and wait quietly for the vision's fulfillment. And then we get these iconic uh, words in verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree doesn't bloom and there's no produce on the vine, though the olive crop withers and the fields don't provide food. Some people would say that um, the author is bringing in ecological catastrophe here to couple it with the impending destruction from Babylon. So it's not just an enemy who is on the precipice of destroying Judah, it's also the resulting uh, or even the worst case scenario of that happens and ecological disaster takes place. The fig tree doesn't bloom, there's no produce on the vine, the olive crop withers, the fields don't provide food, and also the, the sheep are cut off from the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls, even if all of this is happening, even if destruction looms large over us and all of the fallout, the worst case scenario of anything that we can conjure up for us as we look out our windows and we begin to hypothesize all of these scenarios that may or may not be likely, about racism never being dealt with, about our political system always being in shambles, about our polarized views of the world always having a foothold on us and on our fellow brother and sister, and the hatred that that stands between us is never gapped, is never brought any closer, if we live in the midst of the fear and anxiety and the worry that we have in light of this pandemic, if it never gets resolved, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my deliverance. The Lord God is my strength, Habakkuk says. He will set my feet like the deer. He will let me walk upon the heights to the director with stringed instruments the word of god for the people of god will gaffney says the final verse of the psalm it may well be habakkuk's response to his own question in light of the lack of answer from god how long however long it takes habakkuk seems to say god is my strength Now remember what's happening. He's calling out, he's looking out the window saying, violence, injustice, the Torah is ineffective, perversion is reigning. We need you, God, to be the God that you've been in the past. You need to deliver us again. You need to be the God of the Exodus and bring about another Exodus in our moment or we will be destroyed. But then Habakkuk also goes on to say, in light of this vision that's making his bowels quake and his lips quake and and everything about him be in this terrified state, he says, even if it happens and even if we lose all olives and figs and all of our ecological um, ties, then, then we will still, I will still trust you. God is still my strength. Now, what I wanted to, to bring up here is there's this gap, right, between the how long, O Lord, and the I will wait, 
on you, Lord, or I will trust in you, whatever it takes. And sometimes this line, it subverts this how long, this petition. And we sort of get in this moment where you say, you can't petition anymore. You can't pray these prayers against God anymore. Your job is to shut your mouth and to wait and to pray and to hope and to trust. Your job is not to call God to task. Your job is not to raise a petition or a plea. Your job is simply and solely as a follower of Jesus to trust and to be quiet. It's almost like your job is to shut up and dribble. You know, like we, we it, it's, it's this mindset of you're not allowed to address the things in the world that are completely jacked up. You're not allowed to address it in any meaningful way. You are only allowed to trust and to hope. I want to read from this commentary by Will Gaffney. Uh, she is a womanist scholar, meaning the lenses that she brings to the text are as a black woman, uh, which, which is, is a unique lens, one that I certainly do not have, um, that I need to be reading her to add uh, layers and, and context to the interpretation of the text. This is what she says about this, and it's, it's sort of long, but track with me because it is loaded and it is, it is uh, filled with wisdom, okay? It says, the cry, how long, holy one, echoes from those shackled in and by slavery's chains through those systematically oppressed by law and tradition enforced by night riders with flaming crosses to those shot and strangled, beaten and wrestled down by those trusted to protect and serve. It is the cry of black women whose families and bodies have been systematically ravaged by the benefactors, adherents, and evangelists of white supremacy. How long is the cry of the oppressed? It is the cry of those on the bottom of power curves and hierarchies. It is the cry of women, people of color, non-gender conforming people, people with particular ranges of mobility and abilities, the poor, undocumented immigrants and minority communities who do not see themselves reflected in those with power over them or the cultural norms they produce. How long is the cry of a faithful prophet and likewise the cry of faithful people. For those who need it, she says, Habakkuk grants permission to question God, not just about the state of the world, but what God is doing in it and about it. Habakkuk offers a womanish model of faithfulness through his questioning God, demanding a response, and determining for oneself if God's response is valid. She goes on to say, like Habakkuk, we may trust God is turning the world around, but we will stand on, on our perches, on our watch posts, on the ramparts to be sure. And if we don't like what we see, we will call God out again and again.
There is no subversion of the how long, O Lord, by the I will wait on you, Lord. This does not trump this. This does not silence this. This does not render our prayers null and void. This does not demand silence and passivity and inactivity. This does not man that we shut up and dribble. This does not demand that we be silent. This does not demand that we don't look out on the ramparts and call God to task for the violence and injustice that we see in the world. Which brings me to this question, what do we see? What do you see? In the, in the midst of this world, what are the lenses that we're looking out from the ramparts and asking, what are we seeing? And are we to be calling God to task? Are we to be calling God to activity? Are we to be calling God to do a work in our world? And this does not mean that we are without a response. This does not mean that we are without words. This is, does not mean that we do not use our power or our own uh, place of authority and our, our place in the world to evoke change. This does not mean we sit back on our laurels and wait for God to do something spiritual that overtakes the petition. This does not mean that we just say, I will wait and trust on the Lord. That's not what Habakkuk did and that's not what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. We are called to get in the midst of the mess and deal with it for the sake of His name who has called us to fight for justice on behalf of the poor and the marginalized and oppressed. Now, I also know that I've lost some of you here. Some of you are gone because you're tired of talking about systemic racism and white supremacy. You're tired of talking about these issues that you feel that you maybe don't contribute to or you can't, uh, can't cure even if you wanted to. So I would call you also to, to, to be able to look at what you see in the world around you and to ask what you're doing to contribute to it, what you're calling God to do to be a God of activity, a God of action, a God who is not just passive and standing by. What are you calling God to do from your rampart to fix the injustice in the world that you see? Some of this is not just these massive issues. Some of the things that you need to be focused on, perhaps, perhaps justice and injustice are the wrong words here, but perhaps what you need to be calling God to task on are the things in your own life that you don't have a clue how to deal with. You feel as though you're at the end of your rope and you, you're tired and you're broken and you've got nothing left. Cry out to God. Petition God with words that are big, and bold and don't stop until you see what you need to see. Gaffney says, if we don't like what we see on the horizon, we will call God out again and again and again and again to be the God that we know that that God is, to be the God of the past, to do it again. We sing the songs, do it again. Why can't we pray that prayer? Listen, man, I don't know where all of you guys are. I don't know what you're dealing with in your moments uh, and in your specific places. But I hope the takeaway from Habakkuk here is that we are called as followers of Jesus, redeemed by Jesus. 
walking in allegiance with Jesus, to care about what Jesus cares about, that if we don't see it happening in the world, to call God out again and again while we are also acting on God's behalf. Do not give up. Do not cash in. Do not get overly tired. Petition and lament and pray. And while you give all of your respect to the how long, O Lord, may we also learn to live as those who wait and trust while calling God to task and acting on his behalf.